The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Happy Friday and welcome back to another State House Takeout with Matt Murphy and Chris Lasinski this week. We're down a couple of reporters, but uh, we're going to really dig in this week to the uh, education funding reform bill that found its way through the Senate just last night, late last night. They adjourned after 8 o'clock, so this is hot off the press as we sit here on Friday afternoon. A fortnight ago, uh, when House and Senate leadership uh, unveiled this bill together, the Education Committee's version, it, it was met with a lot of uh, praise from, from advocates. And uh, how, how smoothly did, did it end up going this week as it came to the Senate floor for debate? Um, Matt, there was a little uncertainty uh, the night before. Yeah, I guess it depends on uh, who you're asking. At the end of the day, this bill, of course, passed unanimously. So I guess it couldn't have gone smoother uh, after, uh, you know, just a, a relatively manageable day of debate. Uh, they moved through the 69 amendments. There was some changes made to the bill, but nothing drastic. And uh, they secured the uh, bipartisan unanimous vote. But that was uh, not before uh, a bit of a, a brouhaha erupted when Governor Baker, uh, the day before the Senate was uh, slated to debate this bill, uh, released what, uh, s- according to the administration, uh, both the media and many legislators had come to them asking for, and that is a district-by-district breakdown of how this money, this, uh, you know, $1.5 billion in new money for education that this bill uh, would create by uh, updating the formula would be uh, apportioned out district-by-district, town-by-town. Uh, what were, and we heard from uh, Senator Lewis and uh, Rep. Peich sent out an email, uh, what were their issues with the administration uh, sending out this data? Yeah, I almost want to spare you some of these details because we can get in the weeds very fast. But their basic uh, argument was that the governor very selectively painted a picture that they thought was misleading. Uh, And their argument is that it's very difficult to predict how this money uh, will go to the individual districts, particularly in the early years. On a statewide basis, they didn't have a lot to quibble with. The governor, and I should say the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's analysis showed a uh, with inflation, about $2.1, $2.2 billion in additional Chapter 70 aid by the seventh year of this new plan. But uh, the legislative leaders said that the year one projections that the governor put out uh, carried a price tag of $427 million for fiscal 2021. That's next year. Uh, was a, a bit more misleading. Uh, they said the you know, uh, as I said, the details get uh, difficult, but they're talking about I- inflation projections, uh, enrollment growth factors that can be tweaked to tell a certain story, and they thought the governor was trying to muddy the waters here. All right, so uh, were they just saying that the math was done wrong, or were they ascribing any motivation to the administration putting this out there? Well, they think it's political, but it's unclear exactly what they think the governor was trying to accomplish. Uh, Governor Baker hasn't really staked out a position on this bill, though it's assumed that he 
uh, it likely has some concerns with the cost of this over time since it's considerably more expensive than the uh, plan that he put out on himself in his own uh, fiscal 2020 budget proposal. But like I said, the governor hasn't taken a position. Uh, he simply put out this one uh, snapshot of what this could look like uh, for districts moving forward over seven years. And these numbers, of course, are fluid. Uh, they're subject to change. And this is what the uh, legislative leaders were afraid of with these numbers getting out there, you would think that the public would deserve to see some of these numbers and understand how their individual districts would fare under such a big and expensive bill. But uh, they're worried that it's so hard to predict and to pinpoint uh, precise numbers that they didn't want to uh, put out stuff that could prove to be erroneous. Sure. Uh, and, and Chris, on the Senate floor yesterday, uh the minority leader, Bruce Tarr, uh, intimated that the uh, leadership or that the committee had its own district-by-district district information or its own data that they were withholding. And he called, uh, I think, a few times on the floor during the course of debate for the legislature to put its own version of the numbers out there. Uh, do we know if they actually have uh, the data that he was referring to? Well, Senator Lewis himself, amid this back and forth that kind of kicked off the, the debate yesterday, said something along the lines of that he had been meeting with individual members and talking to them about likely effects on districts in uh, school districts within their legislative districts. You know, I, I don't think that the numbers he had used in those meetings were necessarily authoritative or definitive, but he gave the impression that he was able to give members curious about impacts at least some kind of a sense of what it was. And so the minority leader's line of questioning was, well, if you were able to give that to members on an individual basis in meetings, why can't we as the Senate have a complete set of this data so we know what it is we're getting ourselves into? They went back and forth about it for a good 10 minutes there on the floor and never really got a, a resolution before I, it seemed like the matter was sort of just dropped so everyone could move along. Hmm. Uh, although, as as was noted uh, by Matt, it was a unanimous vote. So the Republicans, even though they took issue with uh, that lack of, of information, uh, ended up supporting the, the bill. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, this bill is a massive infusion of cash into everyone's school system. There are some districts that are going to benefit more than others. Uh, a lot of that uh, by design, of course. This bill intended to pump additional money into districts that have been underfunded for years because they educate large populations of low-income students and uh, students with, uh, you know, that are learning English. English learners, uh, yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, th this bill does, even if you look at the Baker analysis of it, it does provide additional funding to every school district throughout the state that they wouldn't otherwise be getting. So you can see why lawmakers would be uh, e eager to support this. Now, uh, Bruce Tarr obviously making the transparency argument, and uh, you know, sometimes it is a bit difficult, to, particularly when we're in the business of sharing information <laughs> to understand how Senator Lewis was uh, preferring to do these private one-on-ones where uh, what I've gathered from talking to other senators who had these meetings, uh, the numbers were not dissimilar uh, and in fact, some of the numbers were identical to the numbers that Baker released to the public. Uh, he just uh, took the time to explain all of the caveats and variables that could impact this. And, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, this was something that everybody could support. Well, you're right, Matt. Every district gets a, a boost. So it's some kind of positive for everybody in everybody's hometown. 
To switch over uh, to the financing for this plan, uh, it was um, it was about the the data that Senator Tarr said they were voting on on faith. Uh, but some folks have also said that they're voting on faith in committing to this level of funding without also bringing in um, new revenues, new taxes to uh, to pay for it. And um, folks pointing to the possibility of an economic downturn in the future as throwing a wrinkle into uh, this funding reform. Uh, how's, how's that looking, Chris? Yeah, I, I think from the, the very beginning of laying out this path, there hasn't really been that clear an argument about how exactly the legislature is going to pay for it. It might have been a week or two ago that uh, President Spilka was on the radio and was asked if uh, any new tax increases would be needed to support this. And she basically said, well, that's up to future legislators to decide when they take a look at what their budgets look like and what you know, funding they need to meet. Um, obviously, in the background of all of this, though not for a, a couple of years, we have the potential for a surtax on household income above a million dollars that would go toward education and transportation. Mm. Uh, I'm sure we could imagine a scenario where a lot of that money helps pay for these things, but that's not a definite or a guarantee yet, even if we're moving there. And at least as far as this bill goes, I don't think it lays out any any clear new revenue structure in it, even as it calls for the investments. And that goes back to some of this uh, debate over these uh, very specific figures that Desi developed. If you think back and remember back to, I mean, I can't really remember back to 1993. I wasn't here. But from what I've been told, you know, during that debate, uh, very similar. That bill, that big education reform uh, didn't include a dedicated funding source. It was more of a commitment that they were going to fund the public schools with this formula and at certain levels. And, you know, I talked to some senators who were like, look, these numbers, uh, it's all hypothetical until we develop our budget year after year. And they allocate a certain amount of funding for education. Uh, and that gets run through the formula and apportioned out to different uh, cities and towns. So, you know, all of this is dependent moving forward on the legislature funding this uh, in future budgets. And it's important to remember, while this bill doesn't have any new taxes or funding sources, it's sort of a, a promise and a commitment to do this. There are things out there. I mean, we know the House is having a transportation revenue debate uh, coming up this fall, but there's the millionaire's tax out there that Democrats have been pushing. Uh, that's still on track to be on the ballot that's funding for education and transportation. So there is potentially additional money out there and coming in that could offset any downturn in the economy. All right, let's turn to the amendments. There were 69 amendments filed in the Senate. A number of them, of course, are always withdrawn or rejected on a quick voice vote. Um, some of the ones that drew more lengthy discussion or debate had to do with uh, charters and accountability. Um, I think those are the, the two big areas, right? Would, would, would you name anything else? No, I, I think that those are the, the most substantial ones. Yeah. Um, on charters, that's a, a lingering issue, right? Um, reimbursements for local districts on money that goes into charter schools. They ended up doing something with charter schools yesterday, Chris, in terms of, uh, what is it, a, a task force or a working group? Or? Uh, I, I think the, the best way to describe it is a punt, if we're being entirely honest. That, that was in the headline, I think, yeah. for what you wrote about. And that, that, that's the perfect word, you're right. 
Yeah, so, you know, something like half a dozen different amendments would have dealt with charters um, going beyond what the bill did, uh, committing to fully reimburse the cost of charter schools, which the state is by statute required to do, but has not done for many years. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, some of these amendments would have looked at the charter school cap or halted the approval of new charter schools until that reimbursement was actually fully met. None of those got accepted, but in sort of a nod to how interested some members seem to it, uh, President Spilka apparently during the middle of debate agreed to form a working group, a Senate working group, to look specifically at this issue of charters. Um, I I call it a a punt because we still don't really know many details about who will be on this working group or what timeline it's going to be operating on, but it was something like an acknowledgement of the the significance. Yeah, this felt, I mean, this really felt like sort of like an appeasement to people who wanted to do this, but, you know, moving into this debate, there was a strong indication from leadership that they had uh, little to no interest in tackling the charter debate. Everybody knows that it's toxic up here, and this is, uh, you know, uh, controversial enough and difficult enough to work through some of these other funding issues to throw charter schools on top of that. I think there was a real concern that that could sink the whole thing. And they were already enough on the same page with the House on this bill that 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 could have potentially uh, derailed things. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're exactly right, Sam. I mean, you know, everybody knows that the Senate and the House are in completely different places on charter schools. Uh, the gov- then there's the governor, a big proponent, but after the bruising battle of the, over the ballot question a few years ago, uh, I think there was a, a desire to try and address this funding uh, issue, in the, or underfunding issue, I should say, without wading back into the charter wa- waters. So you're, this is something maybe that they can get to uh, down the line. I should also note, uh, I, I'm babbling and, and going on and on here. But Go right on. Go yeah, on. The, uh, the budget, the FY20 budget, also yeah. included some charter school funding reform. They changed the funding schedule. It's now a three-year schedule. Uh, we'll see moving forward, like Chris said, if they can actually uh, get it together and fully fund this three-year formula. But the, the idea was and the, the, the rhetoric was that this would be easier to fully fund moving forward. And Chris, the, the folks who kept bringing up the charter issue yesterday, were they, uh, Matt said that the uh, working group was meant to appease them. Were they appeased, do we know? I think it depends on who you asked. We saw several of the members who had charter school amendments praising the Senate president for it, whether that's actual pleasure with the announcement or just a way of sort of maintaining a, a friendly working relationship. It's hard to, to know, be right? I mean, senators love themselves a working group. Yeah, they do. Yeah, <laughs> they love themselves a working group and they love to praise themselves for forming working <laughs> groups, if we're being honest. But at least one, Senator Pacheco, uh, said something along the lines of what the Senate does not need is a working group what the mm-hmm. senate needs is for the house to take this up again underscoring those those uh you know interbranch tensions that that matt highlighted mm. so we are looking for any areas where the senate has adjusted the bill where it might lead to um some tensions down the line a lot of very positive statements came in from different groups after uh passage last night a couple of statements that were kind of sharp, uh, sharply critical, uh, came in about the uh, so-called accountability issue. Uh, Tell us about that, Matt. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Everybody, by and large, uh, in the education community, the the teachers' unions, I mean, people like this bill. It's a a big, uh, bold bill. It adopts 
uh, all of the recommendations of the uh, you know past commissions that have recommended updating and changes to this formula. The one piece uh, that the Senate did change being the the Senator Jalen amendment that had to do with district accountability, uh, relaxing or or maybe I should say giving local uh, districts a little bit more control and taking uh, some of the strings away that would have uh, tied some of this money to districts being able to uh, present uh, plans for student performance improvement, uh, giving the the locals a little bit more authority to set their own benchmarks moving forward. So this uh, certainly bears watching as it moves to the House, uh, whether or not the House keeps or, or stiffens some of these accountability measures, which is also something that we know that the governor is going to be looking for in any final bill. Yeah, good point. Um, the Mass Business Alliance for Education saying that uh, what they've got now is huge new funding with window dressing accountability. Anyway, so uh, yeah, we'll be watching that as well. All right, on our way out the door, let's quickly hit uh, just a couple of other uh, top stories from this week. Uh, Chris, it was a big week for supervised injection site news, uh, so-called safe consumption sites. Uh, On Tuesday, we had packed legislative hearing in the Gardner Auditorium, and that, that really kicked things off. Yeah, uh, you know, for at least the second time this year, and maybe the even more than that over the past two years, we had families affected by the opioid crisis, doctors, social workers come down and, and in some cases basically beg lawmakers to get behind this controversial idea that would allow would create sites where people could use pre-acquired drugs under medical watch so they could be revived if they overdose. Um, you know, whether the, the landscape has shifted in the legislature still remains unclear. You've got a couple who are pretty vocal advocates of it, but uh, by and large, a lot, of, a lot of lawmakers up here seem kind of skeptical about the idea itself and its potential legal implications, which brings us to later in the week. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and quickly on that, though, uh, Senator Sear, who's the co-chair of the Mental Health Committee that, that heard that bill, he, um, he acknowledged that a lot of his lawmakers have concerns and still might view this as sort of a counterintuitive approach to combating the opioid crisis. Right. And, and some of the, the lawmakers who have filed bills or have worked closely on this issue and back it, almost a pr- they, they've described their work on it almost as still trying to educate their colleagues on this and kind of clear some of the stigma that might be surrounding this idea and just get people to fully understand what it is and what the benefits actually are. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, c- continue with the week. On, on Wednesday, we got some news. On Wednesday, uh, out in Pennsylvania, a federal judge, a single federal judge out there ruled that Uh, a proposal by a company in Philadelphia to open such a site would not violate a section of the Controlled Substances Act as federal prosecutors out there had alleged. This was just a civil suit. It wasn't actually being charged with any crime or anything like that. But basically, federal prosecutors had tried to get out ahead of this and use what I've heard referred to as the crack house statute, which is basically a section of the law that you you can't open a, a business or open any other kind of property with the intention of using it for consumption of illegal drugs. Mm. And so what a federal judge said is, yes, that statute's on the book, but it's not clear that the actual goal of supervised consumption sites is for people to use drugs. The real end goal is to get them off of drugs by keeping them alive long enough to to get into treatment. Interesting distinction. All right. Um, And one of the folks testifying at the State House hearing on Tuesday was Somerville Mayor Joe 
Curtitoni, who's uh, been very vocal about his plans to open such a site in Somerville next year. We heard from our Massachusetts U.S. attorney uh, just yesterday uh, with what he might do, uh, reiterating what he might do if, if Curtitoni moves forward. Yeah, uh, U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling basically doubling down on Thursday on his longstanding promise to prosecute any such effort here, said he was aware of the ruling and, and recognizes it, but does not see it as the final book shut, case closed, end ruling, kind of hinting that this is likely going to get appealed higher up the judicial chain and pledging that in the meantime, he still fully intends to, to prosecute any effort here in Massachusetts. So while the ruling ruling seemed to generate a lot of optimism among supporters that maybe this could be a springboard and kind of clear a, a, a path forward for an option in Massachusetts. Its main opponent is just as staunch in his, uh, in his opposition as we were before the ruling. Huh. And Chris, hasn't this been the whole uh, rationale for Governor Baker to oppose these uh, safe injection sites? He won't even entertain the idea, if I remember correctly, because Lelling says he'll prosecute. And as far as the governor's concerned, the, these are just uh, illegal under federal law. He hasn't really said that he opposes them on moral grounds, but more on this like legal uh, explanation that it just can't be done. Right, exactly. That that's his main argument in opposition. I reached out to the governor this week and, you know, through his press office basically did not answer whether he still thinks they are illegal under federal law or not. Um, it's really interesting to see Lelling, again, just completely firm in the convictions that they are. I wonder if that's because the, the ruling in this case was just on one narrow statute rather than any other component of federal law. So hmm. I, I guess it's possible that there are questions that still have yet to be answered about the overall legality of this, but um, this was definitely a, a significant step. All right, and Matt, you're our, you're our man in the 4th District, I guess. You've, you've been uh, covering uh, all these um, who's in, who's out, folks considering... Um, running up, for the down. Who's I don't live down. in the fourth. So Actually, not, Chris, you do. Chris don't you? does live in the Chris, fourth. Chris, you're our yeah. man Chris in the fourth. Chris is our man in the fourth, yeah. Jeez. All right, well... Um, uh, we've had some folks jumping in and out and dipping their toe in the water, uh, so to speak. Um, Treasurer Goldberg decided against a run, even though uh, she had done some internal polling already. Um, uh, tell us about what changed her mind. This, this was kind of interesting. Yeah, what did change her mind? I don't know. But I did talk to her. Uh, what we ended up finding out was that the, the treasurer, who uh, by all estimation looked like she was gearing up for a big run in the fourth where she commissioned polling that showed her to be the early front runner she uh, appeared ready to be the the big the big fish in this uh, pond i guess you could say and uh she but she stayed up all night and she did some uh early morning soul searching yeah maybe i should just start with the timeline i think this kind of uh, spells out just how kind of uh, unpredictable this was even for her closest aides the treasurer uh, had been taking the rosh hashanah holiday to spend with her family uh, she had talked it over with them had met with her rabbi uh, and uh, by all accounts on tuesday night had made the decision that she would in fact run for congress her team had written a speech they'd planned a rollout she had a launch tour planned she had designed and ordered bumper stickers that were at the printer ready to go then she uh, drove to her, uh, this is all according to her, I should point out, she was very forthcoming, but she uh, then drove to her daughter's house, 
uh, her apartment, told her daughter that she had made up her mind. She was jumping in the race. She went home uh, sometime after 10 o'clock on Tuesday night. Her husband was asleep, and she uh, settled in. She turned on CNN, and she spent uh, the next uh, several or many hours uh, watching TV, uh, in a sleepless night, thinking over her decision, uh, why she ran for treasurer in the first place, what it would mean to run for Congress. And by the next morning, she had changed her mind. She said that she just realized that she had unfinished business at Treasury and she couldn't pull the, she couldn't pull the trigger and get in. And so here we are. Uh, she is uh, staying put. She loves the Treasury. She loves the Treasury. And she's going to be the president of the National Treasurers. Exactly. She is flying to uh, Naples. Uh, for the NAST conference, the National Association of State Treasurers. She's about to be elected president of that group. She says she's thrilled about the opportunity to work with other treasurers around the country and spread uh, programs and ideas that she's been working on here, such as the Baby Steps program, which is something she's going to get ready to launch in January to seed college savings accounts uh, for families. And uh, she's just really excited about the work at Treasury and, and didn't want to get into the race after all. But when she decided to pull back from a campaign, uh, some, at least one fellow who had already decided against running was getting calls begging him to jump back in again. Yeah, I mean, nobody looking at this race uh, didn't think that she wasn't getting in uh, and that if she did, she wouldn't be the early front runner. So uh, immediately, uh, you know, Senator Paul Feeney told me his phone started ringing off the hook, uh, people urging him to reconsider. He's not, by the way. Uh, but some other people might. We, uh, uh, it probably remains to be seen what this full field look li looks like. Uh, but we are now at five candidates uh, and uh, maybe growing. Chris, uh, you were with the Lowell Sun back during the third congressional district campaign. Yes, of, I was. Of recent memory. Uh, how, many, how many folks ended up being in the field up there? Uh, by the time the ballots came around, we had 10 Democratic names on the ballot, though. At one point before then, the field was as high as 13 or 14, I think. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe we're going to see another field of equal crowd down here in the fourth. Who knows? Yeah. But two new entrants this week. We did get two people getting in. Jesse Mermel, the uh, former Patrick, uh, Deval Patrick aide and uh, Alliance for Business Leadership president who stepped down to run. She formally uh, jumped in on the race, launched her campaign in Fall River uh, this week, uh, as did Newton City Councilor Jake Achenkloss. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... Um, He's a 31-year-old uh, city councilor, Marine, who uh, you know also got into the race. So uh, two more candidates to uh, watch. All I have to say is those Deb Goldberg bumper stickers for Congress that were at the printers, if any of them actually got printed, that's going to be a hot commodity for collectors of political memorabilia I in Massachusetts. Asked her, I asked her if we could have any, <laughs> if she had actually got them. She said they were beautiful. We would have loved them, but that they didn't get printed. Oh. I'm not so sure I believe her, but yeah, yeah maybe this will be the, the mythical quest for political... Uh, political junkies as souvenir collectors. Yeah, Steve LeBlanc up in the press gallery with his bumper sticker collection. Yeah, exactly. Might be hunting for one. All right. That's all the time we have for this week, but uh, we'll look forward to seeing you back here again next Friday. Yeah, we survived a big education debate without Katie Lannon, who's getting right. married this weekend. Congratulations, Katie. Mazel tov. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.